Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 19th, 2016. This is episode 1853 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. This is one of my favorite shows because... Well, it actually takes me less work than the other shows because I have help. Today I have help from seven members of the Expert Council. Here's what they're going to be talking about today. Nick Ferguson will weigh in on taking root cuttings in the wintertime and storing them for planting later in the spring. We will hear about making salads that don't have greens in them. Not every salad has to be a bowl of lettuce from Chef Keith Snow. We'll hear from... A new council member, maybe, I'll tell you about that when I introduce him for his question, but Patrick Rohrman will be answering a question today on the right angle for the edge of your knife. Also, we will have a twofer from Stephen Harris, getting gas from can to car, and safety around nuclear facilities, and we will hear about investing in virtual reality from John Pugliano. And I have a different take on it that might just make you think about investing in emerging technologies in a totally new way. Next up, I have one for Doc Bones on the long-term effects of Zika on adults, specifically females. Or if a young woman gets Zika, you know, we worry about birth defects. What if a girl gets Zika, she's like 14, she's 25 years old, that many years later, is there a concern? Doc Bones, who is somewhat of an expert on the emerging threat of Zika, will weigh in on that. And Gary Collins, former uh, special agent for the FDA, uh, will answer a question on why statins are dangerous and possibly far more dangerous than the boogeyman of cholesterol. And I will uh, respond to something that's come to me about a gazillion times in the last week, or this week I should say, the rise of the Uber robots. Yes, mechanized Uber robot cars, Volvos in fact, are coming to Pittsburgh this spring. Yeah, and not like one or two of them, a whole fleet. We'll talk about what that means, and then we will close up with uh, a really cool song that goes along with that today. We'll be doing all of that and a little bit more today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1853, because the episode is 1853. We have, we come in peace and ready for war, and we have... Buying is cheaper than fighting. And in other news, the potato chip is invented. George Crumb is a restaurant cook who thin slices potatoes and deep fries them 
dinner is served. On that one, I heard a rumor that the whole way that started was somebody came in and wanted thinly sliced fried potatoes and complained that they weren't thin enough, so Mr. Crumb sliced them ridiculously thin to embarrass the man because he would have to eat from a plate at a restaurant with his fingers because he would not be able to use uh, a fork, but the man was thrilled with them and thus was the birth. I'm not sure if that's legend or reality, though. Steinway & Sons makes their first piano in Manhattan. It is numbered 483 because he already made 482 pianos back in Germany. And the term filibuster enters the political lexicon. The word means freebooter or pirate, but in a debate, a congressman warns against filibustering, meaning disrupting the legislative process, and thus began the use of that term in 1853. This was a tough one. I didn't know which one to read, because these are both very historically important, and I have interesting takes on both. But I'm going to read We Come in Peace and Ready for War because it does show the uh, the rise of the American imperial thinking uh, way back here even. Uh, we Come in Peace, Ready for War. Four black ships enter Japan's Ido Bay. Commodore Perry has come to trade with the Japanese, but he's ready for war if the Japanese want to bring it. Two of Perry's ships are powered by steam engines, so they are belching smoke. It must seem like the demons of the underworld have come to Japan's capital city of Ido. Japan has no navy to speak of, and their shore batteries are 200-year-old cannons poorly maintained. The Japanese direct Perry to Nagasaki, which is the designated port for meeting foreigners. Perry is well aware of the Japanese refusal to trade with outsiders, so he slips them a convincer. He loads up his cannons with gunpowder without shot and fires. The Japanese leadership is in an uproar. That night, an especially large meteor casts a blue shimmering light over the bay. It's a sign. Good sign for Perry, bad sign for Ido. Then the head shogun drops dead, and the Japanese are freaking out. Perry delivers a letter from President Milford Fillmore and promises to return next spring for trade negotiations or else. This is not the first example of gunboat diplomacy, but the practice gains popularity around this time. My take by Alex Shrug. In the 1500s, the Japanese had been master gunsmiths, but the shoguns feared the guns in the hands of the peasants. Over time, they regulated guns and gunpowder and eventually took them out of the hands of the peasants. This made Japan a much safer place for the shoguns and the samurai, but it left the country defenseless. They carried swords, but against a gun, a sword is not much of a defense, even at 21 feet. Commodore Perry's ships were carrying new exploding shells, well, 30 years old by that time, but it must have looked like a super weapon to the Japanese of the day. An explosive shell meant not only could a cannon shot put a fairly big hole in your roof, But it would ruin your whole darn day when it exploded inside your house. An ocean might seem like enough of a barrier against the bad guys until it isn't enough anymore. By the time you find that out, it's usually too late. Well, there's a whole lesson in disarming the people there in national security, isn't there? But I'd like to take a kind of like a stab at why would the United States use military force, at least perceived military force, to open trade with Japan? They don't want to trade with you, so what? Did they really, really need anything that they had that that badly, or couldn't get it elsewhere? Or, you know, was it necessary? This is what I think. I think that if you are a growing nation like the United States and you're trying to stand on equal footing with nations like France and Britain, who are still significant powers in the world at this time, you start to say to yourself, "Self, if we don't open negotiations with Japan, sooner or later somebody either will." Or because they're militarily weak, somebody will invade them and thereby control them. Therefore, we must take what you would call first mover advantage. 
That's what I think the goal is. I'm not saying it's right, definitely not saying it's right to compel any group of people to do anything that they don't want to do when they're not harming anybody and minding their own damn business, which is about the best description of Japan in the 1850s, leaving everybody alone and minding their own business. Um, and then the consequences, of course, can be dire. Ask the Chinese uh, how that all worked out in you know, World War II. And Okay, yeah. But it's the way that it happened. And I think it's interesting sometimes that when we look back in history, if we take away the whole, oh, we were bad when we did this or we were good when we do that, it's good to once in a while ask, why was this done? Regardless of whether or not it was a good or a bad thing, understanding the why is understanding the psychology of the people from the time and thereby better understanding the time. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, I've read about potato chips, and I'm you know deep back onto my low-carb lifestyle, so I'll have to pop a few flackers while we listen to the first answer today. Um, but this is from Nick Ferguson, and is a question on, question on taking root cuttings, how to dig them up, how to take them, and how to store them so they can be then transported and uh, replanted in the spring. Nick, take it away, man. Thanks, Jack, and thank you, Tom, for the good question, uh, how to store those root cuttings. Well, that's super easy. As soon as they are fully dormant, go dig as many as you can. Like, you're going to want to do this as soon as it's really cold, but not so frozen that you can't dig the plants out of the ground. But you want to make sure that they're completely dormant and ready for winter. You want them asleep, so to speak, hibernating. So dig as many as you can. In as large of pieces as you can, pack them in moist potting mix somewhere cold but protected from freezing so you can put them in pots uh, in moist potting soil somewhere that it's going to stay quite cold. They're not going to get you know above 40 degrees but protected from freezing. So something like a garage that's not heated um, in a crawl space underneath the house, that kind of thing. Um, and that's it. That's the short answer. They'll store just fine like that all winter long, and you can just take those bags of plants or pots of plants with you, and you can either pot them up in the spring or you can plant them directly in the ground as soon as it's warm enough. I do have a couple tips, though. You'll notice I said take cuttings that are as large as possible, and the reason for this is that large sections of root will have more embodied energy and be more likely to survive the winter and produce a good, large, healthy plant next growing season. So when you dig that comfrey, make sure you dig all around the plant like you would a tree and loosen it carefully and dig it deeply because you'll want to remove the root crown with as many large roots as possible. And you're going to want to rinse that soil off gently to leave as many roots intact as possible. And if you want to in the spring, you can divide that plant to propagate more plants. But for storage purposes, it's best to keep it as whole and intact as possible. And the same goes for the hops rhizomes. They'll grow better and store better if they're kept as large as possible. Best of luck. I wish I had more to give you, but it's really that simple. It's pretty easy. So uh, to remind the TSP community, I am headed up through Arkansas to St. Louis for Garlic Fest on the 4th of September. It looks like I might have one spot available for the trip up there around the 1st or 2nd of September, and I might have a spot available on Thursday, the 8th of September, around the Nashville area. I'll be headed home. Uh, well, I'll be headed from about an hour east of Nashville 
towards Birmingham, Alabama on the 8th, and then I'll be going straight across I-20 towards home. I'll be headed west. So if you're along that route or even, you know, a couple hours off the route and you want to have me do a full or half day of consulting, send me an email and I'll see if we can get you scheduled. Nick at homegrownliberty.com. I've got some cool news coming that isn't 100% confirmed yet and then some other stuff that I've been itching to tell you guys, but it's going to have to wait until you know, I'm positive on that. Other news and uh, a little bit later before I release the big news, but be looking for an announcement from me soon. Check out my podcast on iTunes or your podcasting application of choice. Uh, we have actual phone consults coming up, so if you're interested in homesteading and sustainable living and off-grid tactics... You probably want to check out the show. HomegrownLiberty.com is the website. Thanks for the questions, guys. Keep them coming. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick Ferguson there, as always. Uh, simple question, simple answer, direct and to the point. Uh, next question I have is for Chef Keith Snow, and it's from a guy that's just a little bit fed up and tired of eating big bowls of lettuce and spinach every time he wants a salad, but he doesn't want to not eat salads because it's a good thing to eat salads. So, Chef Keith, can you help with that? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. James, so you're tired of salads that have lettuce or greens or spinach in them. I understand, man. Now check it out. Salad does not necessarily mean, like if you look at the definition of salad, it's usually just any type of raw vegetables with a dressing. It doesn't mean or, you know, there's no hard and fast law that it has to contain lettuce or greens. So um, you're good to go there, dude. You don't have to worry about that. But this is what you want to think about. There's a lot of other ways to make quote-unquote salads that don't use greens. Um, a couple of quick examples. Something that I love is um, I love rice salads or, or even uh, couscous. Those are two different things, but they both make great salads. Lentils, um, noodles, like a, like a spicy Asian noodle salad. You can have some beautiful spicy noodles. And you can toss in there julienne strips of carrot, green onion. You can have ginger, um, all types of fresh, you know, bell peppers, sprouts, all that kind of stuff. Makes wonderful raw vegetal foods without the quote-unquote greens in it. Um, what about pasta salad? I mean, it depends if you're serving it to kids or not, but pasta salads... If you use the right noodle or the right pasta, can be terrific. Things like um, farfalle, which are bow ties, you know, wagon wheels, you know, even small shells can make great pasta salads. And you can mix up any number of dressings, but put in things like you were talking about cucumbers, tomatoes, scallions. I mean, you could even put um, nice tuna in a salad like that. And mix it all together and, and you can have something really wonderful. One of the things that I love to do as well, quinoa, great um, grain or seed. And quinoa has really grown in popularity recently, mainly because it's um, high in protein, you know, even crazy amounts of protein in, a, in quinoa. And it could be used in a lot of different things, everything from a hot breakfast cereal to a cold salad, um, you know, I grind quinoa. I keep organic quinoa in my pantry. I grind it into flour using my Vitamix perfectly 
smooth flour, and I use it sometimes when I don't want to add flour. Let's say I'm making a, I don't know, a crab cake. Just pull that out of the air, but I want to bind it together without flour or breadcrumbs, for instance. I've got maybe somebody that doesn't want any gluten. You can um, take that type of flour and, and use it. You know, maybe you're binding together a veggie burger or whatever. Um, but back to your topic, um, quinoa is great stuff to make salad with. Now, I cook quinoa and then I make a dressing, you know, olive oil, a little bit of mustard, vinegar, shallots, garlic. And um, then I cut up a whole host of vegetables. And it really depends on what's in season. Sometimes I'll take um, an overload of um, summer squash. I'll caramelize them in a pan with garlic and onions and olive oil. Let them cool off and then toss them with this quinoa with that nice dressing I just mentioned. And you can put all types of things in there, cherry tomatoes, roasted beets, you name it. And you've got a salad without any greens. So keep that in mind. That's um, definitely, certainly possible. Now, I wanted to throw out uh, a famous quote-unquote salad, which is called panzanella. And this is a bread salad. Now, uh, a properly made panzanella can be awesome. Now, what you want for this is kind of like day-old bread. And and I'm not talking about day-old Wonder Bread or day-old, you know, cheap-ass sub-rolls from the supermarket. Because pretty much if you go into the supermarket these days, and you guys can probably relate to it, you walk, you know, depending upon the supermarket, you walk past the produce and you start to make your way down towards the bakery and just smell that industrial, like, dough conditioner, fake butter, just that, I don't know what it is, you know, nasty donut cooking smell. That stuff's not bread. And the other thing that's not bread is all these companies, and it's it's kind of funny to me, and I'm kind of ranting a little bit here, but you see some of these famous bakeries out from San Francisco and places like that that make damn good, real you know, naturally leavened breads, awesome stuff, but then they go into the commercial side of it with these par-baked things. And I'm sorry, but these are just not good. You can take bread and cook it halfway or whatever and ship it across the country. It sits in some bag for a few days, and then you take it home and bake it again. It's just not going to be good. So I don't consider that bread. But if you're making a good, you know, whether it's a no-need bread or even if you have a bakery where you buy some great bread, tends to get a little stale after a few days. That's a sign of good bread. That's the bread you want to use for this panzanella salad. Cut it up into chunks. Take a wide skillet. Put some butter, olive oil, a little bit of garlic, maybe um, some onion powder, some of my northern Italian seasoning or, or any similar product. Toss in your bread cubes, you know, like half-inch chunks, and the key here is not having this, this is not like, you're not trying to saute them on high heat. You want a medium to medium low heat and you toss them into that, um, to the fat, the butter and the oil and just keep moving them around. And after about 20 minutes, they're going to go golden brown and a little bit crispy. Now you want them a little bit crispy because in a few seconds, you're going to add some liquidy ingredients to them and that's going to tend to soften them up. So once you have your bread toasted and cooled, your panzanella bread. It's going to have a lot of flavor in it. You remember you had olive oil, butter, garlic, all that wonderful Italian seasoning in there. Then the um, other ingredients usually are going to be great tomatoes. Now, um, I love to do this with um, 
sweet 100s, you know, cherry tomatoes or any type of heirloom smaller tomatoes are perfect with this. And I would cut these guys in half and then I would infuse some olive oil with garlic and I like rosemary. If you don't like rosemary, maybe some thyme would work for you, but you're definitely looking for one of the woody herbs here. Even sage would work. Like you could omit the tomato and go with butternut squash here. And uh, I've done that and it's awesome. But let's stick with the tomatoes. So a little bit of rosemary um, infused olive oil. So on the in a pot on the stove, a little bit of olive oil, a couple of crushed garlic cloves, um, about a two-inch piece of rosemary. Slowly bubble that on the stove for about 10 or 15 minutes. Strain out the goodies. Now you've got a flavored oil. Now I would use that oil and then take basil and make a pesto using that um, oil and garlic um, infused wonderfulness and make a little pesto. And then you're going to add a little red wine vinegar to that, some salt and pepper, probably a little bit of grated Pecorino Romano cheese. <clears throat> toss the whole thing up, add your tomatoes, toss those in there, and then in goes the bread. The whole thing is tossed together. It's not going to be soaking wet, but it's going to have some moisture, and you serve this panzanella or bread salad, um, maybe some Cheese goes on top, and I'm telling you, it's an awesome way not only to use up some stale bread, but it's got great texture to it. The tomatoes are juicy, that herby, you know, basil oil mixture with the hint of garlic in there and the rosemary. Uh, it really works, and, and some of you might think, well, basil is a strong flavor, and so is rosemary. It might compete with each other, but I've used them successfully in this dish before. So um, I'd give that a try, and, and again, this panzanella concept can be made without tomatoes and other things that happen to be in season. So um, I hope that gives you a couple of ideas to sort of step outside the salad box, because folks, iceberg lettuce with hothouse tomatoes and ranch dressing, man, that's the farthest thing from salad I could think of. So I hope that helps, um, James. So um, make some salad, man. Thanks for supporting Harvest Eating and for listening to the Survival Podcast. Take care, folks. Great stuff there. And uh, I'll, I'll say that maybe next week I will teach you guys how to make your own uh, homemade mayonnaise. Uh, because if you learn how to do that, when it comes to making different types of salads and mixtures and stuff and, and using sauces that, that use mayonnaise as a base, your, your whole life will change. I'm serious. Um, you make mayonnaise from raw eggs. It's completely safe. Uh, if you'd like to know how to do it in a completely safe manner, uh, including with you know your own pastured eggs that haven't been irradiated and not worry at all about salmonella, I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about it at all. And it even involves, for a short period of time, Leaving it at room temperature, let me know, and I'll include that in one of next week's shows. Anyway, the next question here is for a candidate for a permanent seat on the expert council, and I would love to have him. My question is, can we come up with enough questions for Patrick uh, throughout a year to give him a permanent seat on the council? So it's going to be up to you guys after you hear him answer this question to send me questions on knives, edged weapons, tools, and tool sharpening type stuff. And uh, if I get, you know, two or three good questions for him, that puts us through a full month of expert council stuff. And I'll assume we can keep that going, and I will make Patrick a permanent member of the council. I would love to do that. He's a good friend and a real source of knowledge, and it would be good exposure for him. And I think he has a lot of knowledge he can share with you guys. But the question he has today is about what degree of angle for an edge on a knife based on its use. With that, Patrick, please enlighten us.
Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives, here to answer a question for the expert counsel. The question comes from Cody Matthews of Cross-Eyed Tactical. He says, Jack, I'm new to your podcast and podcasting in general, but I'm enjoying your podcast and learning a lot. I have a knife question for you. What angles do you and Patrick recommend for all the different types of blades? I would like to know about everything from kitchen knives, bush knives, general pocket knives, tactical knives, or even axes. My grandfather has a professional knife belt sharpener that I can use, but he sharpens basically everything at the same angle. Thanks for your help. Cody. What a great question. What angle do you sharpen at? For somebody just starting out sharpening, it's fine to go ahead and use one angle and a good angle rule of thumb, as you hear a lot, 22, 22 and a half degrees. So, that's a great starting point for somebody that's just getting into sharpening. But over time, it's good to start learning the proper angles for the proper knife, steel, and, and the purpose that you're using it for. So there's really three things that determine the proper angle to sharpen a knife. First thing is purpose. Um, you're going to sharpen a kitchen knife differently than an axe or a tactical knife. The next thing would be your steel. Different steels are, you know, you've got your your good steels and you've got your, frankly, they shouldn't even be used for a knife steel. And with a good steel, you can hold a nice keen edge and it's going to hold that edge. It's going to take the edge and hold it better longer. If you got some crappy steel, you know, your, your best bet is just putting a really obtuse angle on it because it's not going to hold... Um, it's not going to hold that edge if you try to drop down and get into the cutting performance that you're going to get out of a higher quality steel. And the third thing is the person using the knife. Most chefs would not let anybody just pick up their knife and use their knife because if you don't know how to use that knife, there's a good chance you're going to ruin it. I try to teach people how to properly use knives all the time because Really, the, the way a person uses that knife is a big portion of how well that edge is going to hold. You can take the edge off of a knife in a matter of seconds. Just one mishap or hitting the edge up against anything that's harder than the steel or just as hard as the steel is going to cause that edge to roll over. And that even go, that even comes down to with your uh, steeper angles, like say a 30 degree edge, you can still take that edge right off by abusing the knife. So with that being said, let me go into some of the categories and we'll start off with the lowest angles. And when I'm talking about angles, what I want you to understand here is most knives are sharpened on both sides. So if I say a 20 degree edge, that is a 40 degree overall uh, blade geometry. So this starts off with your lowest angle that you're going to go is between five and eight degrees. And this is what you're going to find typically on like a razor or like some super high end kitchen knives designed for cutting, uh, real soft materials like meat and stuff like that. You're really not going to find too many kitchen knives even with that low of an ang angle. But if you do the two penny trick, like I teach and some other people teach, uh, that really is about 6 degrees, uh, 12 overall. But 
that also gives into account some fluctuation from the person sharpening by hand. So you're going to end up with about a 16, 17 degree edge on a kitchen knife. So that five to eight degrees per side, so 10 to 16 degrees overall. Your next, uh, next stage is going to be eight to 15 degrees per side or 16 to 30 degrees overall. And that's going to be your premium kitchen knives, your, your good quality steel. You can really drop it down to a low angle and uh, put a just screaming sharp edge on it. Next is 15 to 20 degrees or 30 to 40 overall. This is, this is getting into the category of like most other knives for the kitchen, pairing knives, uh, such like that. And then you get up into 20 to 25 or 40 to 50 degree overall edge. And this is where cheap knives with cheap steel, I would suggest somewhere between 20 and 25 degree, uh, 40 to 50 degree overall edge. That is a great robust edge, even with a cheaper steel that's going to hold up and do well under most normal tasks, not doing any chopping or such things like that. And last, we're going to talk about 25 to 30 plus degrees. This is where like axes, cleavers. Now, what do I do for my knives? Um, the Genesis neck knife, I sharpen at about 19 degrees per side. So that's an overall of 38 degrees. If I'm sharpening by hand, a lot of times I'm, I'm coming in somewhere around 17 degrees, 34 degrees overall. Uh, as you start to use knives like sharpening axes and kitchen knives, tactical knives, all that, you really start to see how just a few degrees make a huge difference in the cutting performance of the knife. So, back to your original question. Yes, it is okay to sharpen everything the same. However, as you progress in your experience and knowledge, you'll start to learn what works best for you. And that really is what's most important because a lot of people shoot out numbers and degrees and, and I don't even think half the people haven't even measured them out. You know, in fact, until until I was really asked, I've never sat down to figure exactly what angle I'm sharpening my knives at. It's just experience. Uh, experience, you learn uh, as you sharpen, okay, well, this was a little bit too, you know, I was holding a little bit too low. I need to bring it up just a little bit. Okay, well, this edge, you know, I think it can do better, so I'm going to take that angle down a little bit more and see just how how it will perform because even with the Genesis good steel sharpened at 19 degrees I have some users that just destroy their edges and so when I get their knife back and they've ruined the edge and they haven't had that knife for a real long time then I bring their angle up steeper because obviously they're using that knife harder than another user and so I sharpen that knife according to the steel, the use, and the user. So I hope this answers your question and if you guys have any other questions please feel free to uh, shoot Jack an email. I'll help answer them best I can. If you want to learn more about sharpening and how to sharpen on, with Japanese whetstones 
then be sure to go to my site, mtknives.net, pick up a copy of Beyond Razor Sharp. I hope you have a great weekend. This has been Patrick Rohrman, Jack's personal knife maker, mtknives.net. Have a good day. Well, that was a hell of a first one, wasn't it? Damn good job, Patrick. Thank you for that. I want you guys to know he turned that around for me in about a couple hours. Uh, so it was, uh, it was great to get, uh, you know, I sent it to him in the evening and it came back to me the next day in the morning. Uh, so that was, you know, uh, really just the sign of an expert, right? An expert is not someone that sits down and says, let me go research this question for three days before I answer. An expert's a person that when you ask them a question, I've got an answer for you on it, and that's a, that's a damn solid one. So I'd love to have Patrick as a permanent sitting member of the council. All I need is enough uh, knife, uh, axe, uh, machete. Uh, if it cuts, he can probably answer questions about it for you, and uh, we will we'll be happy to keep him around and uh, give him a permanent seat. Next one I have is a twofer from uh, for Stephen Harris uh, on getting gas from gas can to car the easy way. And uh, on nuclear concerns and living around nuclear facilities, Steve, take it away. Hi, this is the expert panel. Uh, Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. It's a quick twofer because I got two short questions here for you. One is from Patrick. This is for you, Steve. I'm looking for a better way to get gasoline I store into my vehicle. Details. I currently have five. Quantity 5, five 5-gallon gas cans that I store fuel in. I regularly add the fuel from those cans into my vehicle, but simply putting a funnel into the car and then pouring the gas into the funnel is a pain in the rear end. Recently, I injured my shoulder, and it's much more difficult now to lift those gas cans and pour. Is there a hand crank, pump, or another method you could recommend to get the fuel into a vehicle from a plastic 5-gallon can? I've been storing gas now for over a year. It's worked out great. It's really nice having that reserve at the house. Thanks for all you do for to you and Jack for the show. Thank you, Patrick. Patrick, the easy answer is I have a show called Fuel and Fuel Storage. It's at solar1234.com, and the items that I recommend for it are also at solar1234.com. All I do recommend is you get that fuel can higher than the fuel tank. Personally, I don't have a shoulder problem, so I would put it on top of my vehicle. But if you can just get it on a table that's higher than the gas tank, that's fine. You go get a 3-8 inch primer bulb, like what they use for a boat, and you get some 3-8 inch gas line, which you can get at AutoZone or any of the other places. Just go in. Tell them you want a four-foot section and a six-foot section. The four-foot section goes into the can, into into the primer bulb. The six-foot section goes from the primer bulb into the gas tank. And you just simply squeeze the bulb and get it flowing, and you let gravity do the work for you. That is honestly the best, used it for years and years and years, method that is not going to fail you. No pumping, no priming, no electricity, no pumps. It works off of gravity. So that is the way I, mean, I would suggest that you do it. You just have to get it on top of a card table or a couple of chairs just so the bottom of the fuel tank, the fuel can is higher than the inlet of the uh, gas on your house. The other question I have 
is, let's see, who is this from? This is from Todd, and he's in Texas, one of my favorite states. And he wants to know what is considered to be the safe distance around a non-power research or test nuclear reactor. The third, provide any and all details after that. This is the, what is the formula you give for the best chance of getting away from radiation in the air. I am in Texas and decided to add a printed map to my family go bags. Very good idea. Very good. And I have marked the locations of the nuclear power reactors, like the 3,000 megawatt range ones, in Texas, and drawn a 50-mile radius circles around these, which seems to be commonly accepted safe zones in case they melted down like Fukushima. However, I live within 30 miles of Texas A&M University, which has two non-power, non-power keywords, research nuclear reactors, and I am within 75 miles of the University of Texas in Austin, which has another non-power nuclear reactor, and I can't find any information on what a safe distance would be. My primary concern is if the grid were to go down for an extended period of time, the reactors would begin to overheat and melt down, much like Fukushima. If we were on the move for whatever reason, I want to avoid these areas completely. I know the contaminated zones would be smaller for research reactors, but just not how small to be safe. <clears throat> okay, first of all, these research nuclear reactors, listen to me, everyone. A research nuclear reactor is nothing like a Fukushima or a power nuclear reactor. Nothing. The two don't have anything in common. I mean, a mouse and an elephant have more in common than a research nuclear reactor and a big power nuclear reactor because they're both mammals and they both have four legs and they both breathe air. Okay, a mouse and an elephant have more in common than a research reactor and a power nuclear reactor. I grew up living in a town with a big chemical plant, and they had research nuclear reactors. And we had briefings on them, and I have friends of mine with nuclear physics degrees, PhDs, and they use research nuclear reactors. They use these things as a source of neutrons for doing radioactive-based chemistry. That's all. You, There is no cooling system to them. You couldn't make them melt down if you took all of the nuclear material and played with it like Play-Doh and put it all together in one piece. You, you couldn't make it happen if you wanted to. These are what is called inherently safe. They are not even guarded 24-7 by a man with a gun or a security guard. You have an access badge to grant you access, and you have a key to open the door. And that's all I'm going to tell you about their security, okay? Because even Al-Qaeda might be listening to this. They're not guarded. The DOE is not controlling them. 
They are not a danger or anything to you or the public, so you do not need to worry about them in the least. Now, as far as full-scale nuclear reactors, full-scale nuclear reactors, the meltdown that happened in Fukushima, really, people, it's not going to happen in the United States. The reactor in Fukushima was on a nuclear, was on a nuclear fault zone. It was on an earthquake fault zone. And it was in a tsunami zone. It was built on the coast. So you had the worst case scenario ever that could happen. You had an earthquake that knocked down the grid power. And guess what? Large scale nuclear reactors aren't self powered. They need power from the grid. They cannot do what's called a cold start or a black start. They need to start up off the grid. And then they have diesel generators, big ones with lots of fuel to keep all the cooling pumps and everything going. And what happens? A 30 foot tsunami wave comes and goes over the tsunami dike and it completely wipes out the diesel generators and they have eight hours worth of battery power for running the cooling pumps and that's it. So <laughs> talk about a massive catastrophe of failures for Fukushima to happen and four nuclear reactors fully melted down and blew their tops, which is a long story of how that happened. And still they emitted one-tenth of the radiation. Four reactors in Fukushima emitted one-tenth of the radiation of Chernobyl. And Chernobyl was a graphite-moderated nuclear reactor, which was part of the problem. And the Fukushimas were water-moderated nuclear reactors, the way they're supposed to be designed. So while I advocate you making a map, and boy, is that a thing, good thing to do, and drawing a radius around the, the nuclear reactors in a big grid-down situation, they're going to be taking care of themselves. Some of the smartest people in the world are working there, and they're going to be taking care of the nuclear reactor. It's really not going to melt down. And then if it did melt down, you had better know which way the wind was blowing because the contamination zone could be bigger than 50 miles, but it's going to be cone-shaped going out, and it's not going to be a radius. But Hey, know where they are, draw circles around them, mark up your maps. It's a good thing to do. Everyone should have a map in their bug out bag of their state and states around them with things marked up on them, especially the secondary roads and how to get the hell out. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Thank you for two very good questions. Everything I did with Jack is at Stephen1234.com. And I hope this alleviates some of your fears. Call in more questions, guys. I love them. Talk to you later. Bye. You know, I, I really thought he was going to kind of blow a gasket, but he didn't. He held it in. Could you hear him? He was, he was teetering. He was, he was on the edge of a full on Harris rant, but he held it in. So that was, that was a great answer on both. And I'll tell you the, uh, the thing about the gas, when I sent him that one, like, this is an easy one. You know, like, I can do this because I've been doing it ever since I learned it from Steve. My diesel truck, I have a great big um, toolbox that I have a Harris battery system built into. And uh, my gas tank is right where that toolbox is, you know, lower down on the truck. And I throw a five-gallon jerry can up there, throw my uh, gas line in, throw the gas line into the thing, pump, pump, and I walk away. I just walk away. 
I, you know, I come back and the can's almost empty, and I throw the you know the, the the nozzle on it. There's another word for it I won't use today, right? And then just dump the last little tiny bit out of the can, and then I throw it in the back of the truck. And next time I get the truck full, I fill the can up, and then I put it back in its place in line. And I next month I do it again. Actually, I've been really slow and um, rotate my diesel fuel this last two years with you know being here and not driving to an office anymore since we moved to Texas and and all. Um, I think I figured out yesterday that I've put 850 miles on my truck in 2016 so far. Most of that going from here to Silver Creek Materials and back to pick up wood chips and stuff like that. So uh, I, I haven't always had the ability to get five gallons of fuel into the truck at the end of a month. Because um, there's some months where I don't really get a lot of materials, so I've had to uh, double up. But remember, if you're storing fuel, that is the easiest way to do it. What you want to store... You want to store six cans, then do them every other month. You store 12 cans, do it every month. Dump the fuel into the vehicle, take the vehicle and the can to the gas station, fill up the gas can, fill up the vehicle, put the gas can back in line, and that way you never have gas that's really more than a year old, ever. Really, really a great way to do things. All right, so the next question is for John Pugliano in investing in virtual reality, and I'm going to come back with something that might just make your mind go, whoa. Maybe I should be investing in X, Y, Z, and maybe my concept of investing has just changed. We will see. John's got great advice, too. So, John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Jeff about investing in virtual reality. Jeff's specific question is, how would a, a novice investor go about investing in virtual reality? Well, Jeff, I have a, a couple of ideas and suggestions for you. But before I get into that, I want to give you the buzzkill Debbie Downer answer, which is if you're a novice investor, you shouldn't be investing in new technologies. Do yourself a favor. Stay away from them. If you're starting out as a novice investor, you're going to have two strikes against you right off the bat. You know, Number one, you're investing in an unproven technology that you don't know anything about or that no one does because that's why it's a new technology. And then number two, you, you're not a seasoned investor. So you're more likely than anybody else to, to make bad mistakes or get ripped off. So bottom line, stay away from it. For those people that want to ignore my advice or if you're a more experienced investor, then I have three things I'd recommend to you. But before I even go into them, let me, let me give you a little bit of a disclaimer here. I'm a very conservative investor. Now, I invest with trends. I follow momentum. I don't believe in buy and hold strategies. I mean, I do consider myself an active trader, but that doesn't mean that I take undue risks. And so a couple of rules I have is, number one, I don't invest in, in IPOs, initial public offerings, nor do I invest directly in like new unproven technology. And the reason for that is that it's very likely that you're going to invest in the wrong thing and have a catastrophic loss. You know, for example, in new technologies, think of all the cancer-curing drugs or high-tech solutions that, that just never worked out. They never panned out. I mean, for that matter, look at proven technologies that didn't work. Go back 20-some years ago to VCR technologies and look at the battle between VHS and Betamax. Well, Betamax was clearly a better technology, but VHS won out. And even with VHS technology, well, it was only, what, a matter of a decade or so that it was even relevant before it was replaced by something better. Now, not only do I avoid new technologies, but I also avoid brand new companies, things like initial public offerings. 
GoPro is a perfect example of that. If you don't remember GoPro, pull up a chart of it. Go back and look. Oh, I guess it's probably two years ago that it, uh, about that it came on the market. It did extremely well in the first three months, but then it quickly started to fall apart. And if you look at the price today, you know it's down probably more than 80% from its high. IPOs are extremely volatile. They're extremely dangerous. You never know when the rug's going to get pulled out from under you. And so I just avoid them. My general rule of thumb for new companies is I wait for a good you know, 12, 18 months before I even think about buying a, a new company's stock. Now, if I were going to invest in something like virtual reality, here's what I'd look for. Number one, I most likely wouldn't invest directly in the technology. And so this is kind of like the California gold rush strategy, where rather than being a gold miner and going out and trying to pan for gold, I think it's a better idea to sell the picks and the shovel to the prospectors. And so taking that strategy, rather than investing directly in someone that makes the technology for virtual reality or the, you know, the direct virtual reality company, I would look up the supply chain and see who is supplying those people. You know, chances are it's an established company, like maybe a chip manufacturer, somebody like an Intel or an ARM. And I'm just throwing those two names out there. I haven't looked into it. I have no idea how far they are into virtual reality. But that's where I'd go. I'd go upstream. I'd look at maybe imaging type companies or companies that are that are going to make the inner workings of, of the screen and the projection technology. These companies are already likely in business. They're profitable. And although they may not make as much as the actual integrator, the entire virtual reality system, they're also much less risky. And so to kind of take this out of the virtual reality, but to give you an example of an existing technology right now where this could be applied to, it would be in the, the driverless or the autonomous cars or the driver-assisted cars. You know, if you want to invest directly in that technology, you can look to somebody like a Tesla. But rather than investing directly in a Tesla, look at the suppliers to Tesla. So somebody like Mobileye that makes the sensors for autonomous vehicles, that might be a, a, a much less risky option. Or even to take it one step further than that, look at an, a, a tier one automobile supplier, something like Delphi, that's going to benefit because of the value add in the parts that they're going to supply to a car manufacturer. So somebody like a Delphi is likely to be profitable and be around regardless of where the autonomous driving uh, technology takes it because they're always going to sell that more expensive value-add product to Tesla or Apple or GM or Ford or whoever implements the technology. So number one, that's what I'd do. I'd look upstream from the technology, see who's going to be the existing profitable incumbent supplier in that market that's likely to benefit. And step two is very much related to that, but rather than looking at in the upstream supply chain, I'd look at companies that are downstream. So again, not the actual virtual reality company, but a company that's likely to benefit from the implementation of virtual reality. So for example, a company like Disney. In full disclosure, right now I do own stock in Disney. It has nothing to do with virtual reality, but I do think a company like Disney is it was very likely to benefit from virtual reality because they're already an extremely well-managed company, very profitable. They have a long-term history of taking old content and adapting it to whatever the new medium is. And so Disney is a very innovative, adaptive company, and I think that regardless of who makes the equipment that's going to eventually be successful in virtual reality, a company like Disney is likely to benefit from that because it makes their content that much more value add. 
Uh, Nintendo is another example. You know, they've, they've done very well with Pokemon Go in, in recent months where they took an old product, gave it new life by integrating it into an augmented reality app. Apple was another company that comes to mind with somebody that's likely to do well with virtual reality. And I say that just based on Apple's history. Now, Steve Jobs is gone, so maybe Tim Cook and these other people won't be able to pull it off. But remember, Apple never had first mover advantage to the products that they created. Right? They didn't invent the PC. They didn't invent the MP3 player. They didn't invent the cell phone. But they took all of that existing technology and they created products that were far superior to everybody else's. And I think when you look at Apple, not only their history of making hardware, but their software, and then all the content that they own and things like that, and their delivery apps like the, the iStore and iPay, I mean, I think that all wraps up very nicely into where Apple could very much benefit from the advancement of virtual reality technology. Now, the third thing here, and this is the most riskiest, but it's also the way to make the most amount of money in the shortest period of time. This is definitely not something that a novice investor would do. But as a third strategy, rather than looking at companies that you can invest in that are going to benefit from virtual reality, I would take the opposite approach and look at companies that you can short because they're going to be hurt from the disruption of virtual reality. Now, if you don't even know what it means to short a stock, then don't even think about going there. But just to give you one example, I would think that movie theaters are very likely to have their business models disrupted by virtual reality. These guys are hurting anyways. I think that it's likely that something like virtual reality could be the final nail in their coffin. I think the threat of virtual reality to movie theaters is that it just takes the whole movie experience out of going to the theater. Movie theaters are very much centralized providers of entertainment. Virtual reality, and Pokemon Go is a perfect example of this, I mean, it's taking people away from a fixed screen or a fixed TV and having them go out and interact in their environment. So a movie theater company like, you know, Cinemark, and that might be on my short list. Just as a sidebar here to give you an example of how this works, right now Uber is having a huge impact on rental car companies. Your business traveler that was likely to fly into a city and, and rent a Hertz or a Enterprise car, well, they're not doing that anymore. They're flying into the airport, they're pulling out their smartphone, and they're just using Uber. So that's an example of how something as simple as an app can have a detrimental effect on an established, profitable company that's been around for decades. So, Jeff, to sum it all up, I, I do think there's going to be some great opportunities in investing in virtual reality technology. However, as I mentioned in the beginning... Whether you're a novice investor or even an experienced investor, I'd encourage you to take a very conservative approach. Remember, there's no get-rich-quick schemes that work. That goes counter to all the spam and junk mail and pop-up advertisements that are always telling you how easy it is to take $10,000 and turn it into $10 million. But I'm here to tell you that that's not very likely to happen. So, Jeff, thanks for your question. If you'd like to get more information about my stock market commentary or my general thoughts on wealth-building principles then check out the Wealthsteading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Okay, so I am um, in complete agreement with John. And, and the two ways of looking at this from an investor standpoint, if I'm looking at stocks, I, I, right, I'm a little bit farther away from VR right now being what it's going to be, and I don't know that I would hold a stock long enough to be picking it based on this now. But companies like Disney, I mean, think about the fact that Disney now owns the largest movie, individual movie franchise that's ever existed, ever, infinity, in Star Wars. And what could be done with the existing 
movies with virtual reality alone. And what's that worth? All right? That's the way I'm thinking, too, from a pure investor standpoint. But from a more entrepreneurial investor standpoint, I'd like to tell you a story. Back in 2007, there was a young entrepreneur working really hard. He was even consulting for a guy that's running for president now, Donald Trump. His name was Jack. Jack was uh, building yet another company with his business partner, Neil Franklin. He had become disillusioned at corporate America and was really tired of having employees, and he wanted to do something on his own. And he looked at many different market sectors and said, which sectors do I think are going to grow? And he, he included in his assessment, since a recession was going to be coming soon, things like home improvement, but buying Home Depot stock didn't seem like it would fix Jack's problems. So Jack looked around and realized when hard times come that people turn toward the preparedness industry. And there was a lot of things that were indicating that the preparedness and survivalist industry was about to go on a real big rally, that there might even be reality TV shows based on it. There were a few little ones, but bigger ones would be coming, and this whole sector would be growing. And Jack thought, should I take some of my money that I have in secure investments and try to find a small company and invest in this because they'll ride the wave to success? And Jack said, no, that's dumb. I'll just lose my money. And even if I make my money, it's high risk for little reward. Let's say Jack had taken $50,000, found a company that was in that sector and invested in that company and made a four-time four uh, uh, return, $200,000. Yay, but it's still only $200,000. And how many years did it take to make it? And as that sector kind of waned, if you didn't exit at the right time, how would that have worked out for Jack? Maybe not so good. So Jack said, maybe the way that I can invest in this, I can actually solve my other problems with, I hate this crap that I'm doing now. And I know a lot about preparedness and self-sufficiency, and I know a lot about self-reliance. I know a lot about economics. I know a lot about all the stuff that people that are concerned about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and survivalism want to know about. And what I don't know about, I can learn about. Maybe I should figure out how to leverage that. And this guy, Jack, started a show called The Survival Podcast over eight years ago that now is a full-time income. He invested in the sector by establishing a business in the sector that actually has very low risk because it doesn't hold a lot of assets. Jack didn't go out and start buying wholesale uh, foods and reselling them through a website. He went out and created an informational product, an educational product, and an entertainment product based around the sector. I'm just saying that the fellow asking the question, virtual reality is going to be one of the most incredible technologies emerging in the coming decades. Maybe there's some sort of way to do something like I did. Maybe a podcast, maybe something totally different. Maybe the definitive website that reviews emerging virtual reality technologies. I don't know. But I can tell you this. When you're first to the game, you have a decisive advantage on everybody else. And if you add to it consistent execution of the plan, you can build a dominant business in your sector. And I would just say I think virtual reality will be a bigger business sector than survivalism. So let that kind of go into all of the listeners' heads out there because some of you are thinking there are other things that are coming that are going to be huge. Maybe the person that talks about, writes about, or enables consumers to know about them first will have an advantage as that entire sector grows. That's how I think of as an entrepreneur. The most valuable thing I have is not my money. 
It is my time and my talent. And it is a lot less risky to invest that because I am more nimble with my time and my talent than I can be with my money. And all I've lost is time. You never lose talent. You become more talented by being in the game. So when it comes to investing in something like virtual reality, what can you create in the sector? My thoughts. Next up, Doc Bones with a question on Zika. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, author of the brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. 700 pages, 700, wow, pages of information that will help you succeed even if everything else fails. I'm also the founder of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 850 my gosh, post podcasts and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from Jared, who writes, What are the long-term implications for women who contract Zika, even if they're not pregnant today? For example, if a single non-pregnant woman in her 20s gets Zika today and then in two years decides to have children, what are the consequences, if any? Since viruses don't leave our system, are there long-term impacts to getting the Zika virus at any stage in a female's life, even if pregnancy is years away. Well, as the author of the new Amazon book, The Zika Virus Handbook, all I can say, Jared, is I'm so glad you asked. Jared, there isn't a lot of good news about Zika, honestly, in terms of the effects on newborns. Zika virus can cause serious abnormalities in the brain, head, eyesight, hearing, joints, all sorts of places. And these are nerve damage issues that are unlikely to ever improve. So anything we can do to prevent infection during pregnancy is very, very important. However, there is some good news. Although we have a lot to learn about Zika, it appears that getting the infection confers long-term immunity, just like getting chickenpox makes you likely to be immune afterwards. We don't know if we can call it lifelong immunity, however, but it could well be. Now, if you get Zika, the virus leaves your bloodstream in a week or two, and if you're not pregnant at the time, you're likely to have mild symptoms, if any at all. It lasts longer in male seminal fluid, at least six months or so, though. Although there are viruses that stay in your body forever, like HIV and herpes, Zika is thought to be one that the immune system does eventually get rid of. The CDC recommends no unprotected sex for females for eight weeks after diagnosis of acute Zika virus infection, and at least six months for males to protect future pregnancies. The vast majority of Zika infections occurred due to mosquito bites, though, not sexual transmission, so it's wise to wear loose, light-colored clothing, long sleeves and pants, and use mosquito repellent containing DEET, D-E-E-T, or oil of lemon eucalyptus in areas with high mosquito populations. So bottom line, future pregnancy should be safe, even in women who have had an abnormal baby with Zika infection. About time we had some good news about Zika virus. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a solid by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, and the new current events podcast, American Survival Radio. You'll find links to all of these at doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Great stuff from Doc Bones. Um, I got a question recently for Gary Collins because we talked about statins and their dangers uh, in the interview that I did with Gary recently. So uh, it's kind of sparked some interest. And uh, Gary will speak more to why statins in, in many instances, especially with the way they're used 
wholesale today for anybody and everybody with a total cholesterol over 200 can actually be far more dangerous than what doctors call high cholesterol. I know that seems like heresy, but uh, Gary speaks from inside the industry, so here you go. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And with our recent discussions about cholesterol, another question about statins has come up because uh, I have gotten quite a few people asking me about statins over the years and I've actually had friends take them and we've had long discussions about it and the dangers of statins and why doctors seem to be prescribing them to even healthy people. Simple answer is in order to sell a product and sell a lot of it, the pharmaceutical industry has figured out you create a problem that really doesn't exist. So what they did is uh, they were, through many lobbying, lobbying groups, they were able to lower and have doctors say that a total cholesterol reading of 200 or above was technically high, and then you would need to take a statin. And I know this all too well. My cholesterol, total cholesterol, has been anywhere from 190 to 200 for the last 15 years. I'm totally healthy. I don't have any issues. And I've had more than one doctor try and put me on statins. Um, another reason is doctors are no longer taught nutrition and how to diagnose and treat conditions. They're only taught how to prescribe a drug for a certain uh, either condition or symptom. That's it. Now, I've I'm dead serious. Doctors no longer understand the human physiology and how it reacts to nutrition, environment, stresses. They're getting better. Um, it's been sinking in. But also, you must remember that medical schools today are, and all, almost all of their research is funded by the drug companies and a lot by the food, junk food companies like Coca-Cola, Pepsi. I kid you not. Uh, it's pretty insane when something like Nestle is the main contributor on a study done concluding that sugar is not uh, uh, is not uh, have a negative impact on your health. I kid you not. So with that, statins, there's been numerous studies and there is no scientific data that shows that statins actually lower the risk for heart attacks, period. There's just no statistical evidence. But statins do have negative health consequences primarily, and this is what I saw in one of my friends especially, was memory loss, achy joints, and a lack of or a wasting of muscle. I mean, I watched over the first six months watching his muscle mass just deteriorate. And he wasn't taking a very high dose. In addition, statins inhibit an enzyme in your liver that produces cholesterol. And this is the same enzyme that produces, and it produces CoQ10. CoQ10, as you guys have heard, and it's a very popular supplement, and the reason why is because a lot of people are on statins. CoQ10 is used as an energy source or an energy production by every cell in your body. And also, it's a very strong antioxidant, very powerful antioxidant. So that is, and remember, antioxidants are a countermeasure for inflammation and chronic inflammation. So with that, and remember, I've talked about how cholesterol is essential. Without cholesterol, we would, we would not be able to live. So an elevated cholesterol level could mean several things. It could mean inflammation and 
an injury going through the healing process. It could be you had, uh, if you're an endurance athlete, you went on a, a long, prolonged endurance training session the day before. So it's always good to get multiple readings. But if your total cholesterol is not over 300, there is no reason for statin. Statin should be a absolute last resort. So I hope that helps. And uh, remember, guys, uh, prescription drugs are always a last resort, not a first resort. So look for the natural remedy first and changing lifestyle, nutrition, nutrition, adding exercise. Again, if you have any questions, hit me in the comment section. Thanks a lot. So there you go, guys. And I, I mean, I, I, I know it's hard to accept that our pharmaceutical manufacturers would literally create a disease that doesn't exist to put a dangerous drug into the bodies of, of tens of millions, if not a hundred million Americans at this point. Um, but that's what they do. That's what they do. And it doesn't mean everything they do is evil. It doesn't mean that all pharmaceutical drugs are bad. It doesn't even mean that there might not be a use for statins in some people. But you have to think about this from a business standpoint. If I'm a business person and I make statin drugs, the only way I can grow my business is to grow the number of people they're prescribed for. And once you understand that and you understand basic fiscal responsibility and the way corporations are run in America, then you understand the results perfectly and they don't really surprise you. They might appall you, but they don't surprise you. Anyway, I am going to talk a little bit here at the end about the Uber robots that are coming and the continued denialism of some people. So I'm not going to read the article to you, but the basic premise is this. By spring of next year, uh, there will be uh, about 100 Volvo XC90s running around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, and other parts of the area uh, that are driven 100% by computer. People will pick up their phone just like they do now, and I will put a link to where you can read the article on Bloomberg. And uh, they say, I want an Uber. There's a self-driving one. It's five minutes away. This is how much it costs. Boom. And Uber will, car will, will pull out, will come to their location, will pull over, or they will get into it, and it will take them where they want to go and drop them off. To get by regulatory hurdles and make this happen now versus 10 to 15 to 20 years from now, which is what the government seems to think is norm, like it's at least that far away because trust me, government doesn't want this. Uh, what Uber's saying is, well, we'll just have a person sit in the driver's seat that can take over the car's control at any time. And that way we'll get real world experience and there's no risk. The driver's still there. They're just not doing anything. Interesting. So I told you this was coming and coming fast, and a lot of you, I got so much pushback, and I'm getting a tremendous number of emails now saying, wow, how I never thought it would be this fast. What I, I want people to understand is this, this new technology is going to accelerate, not slow down. So how quickly we're going to go from A to B is going to be longer than we're going to take to go from B to C, and that's going to be longer than it takes to go from C to D. There is a, a bottleneck of technology that up until this point has been held back by fear, by labor guilds, and by government that has gotten to be so extensive, so bottled up. It's like a volcano. It's got to blow loose. And once it starts to flow and people lose their fear of it, then it's on like Donkey Kong, as they used to say, right? Um, and, and that's the world we're headed for. And I'm not going to speak long about it today because I've talked about this a bunch, but there's a reason I keep bringing this up. This is the number one threat 
to the economic lives of individuals, especially those of us over 30 in the world today. It really is. And I'd say over 30, under 50, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the crosshairs with you guys. We're the ones most susceptible to this. Because we're still working, we have to deal with the economic transition. We're not old enough to be surviving on Social Security yet. Um, we're going to be the ones that this whole, this whole disruption probably makes our Social Security go boom and vanish like a fart in the wind. And yet there's so much opportunity with it. There's so much incredible opportunity for us and for mankind as a whole with the advancement of technology. I I think sometimes because I'm opposed to certain technologies that are used for ill purposes, and I'm not usually opposed to the technology. I'm opposed to them being used for the ill purposes. People think that I'm anti-tech. I'm anti-advancement. I'm I'm excited about seeing so many of these things. I, In some ways, I wish I was a little younger so that I could see more of it. I, I'd, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to be my granddaughter Tegan right now. Just born. 2016, you know, I mean, when you just look at, at the average age of people, unless something goes drastically wrong in her life, she'll see the year 2100. And I know many people in the survivalist world fear the future, the dystopian potential future. But it's up to us what that future is. We are that which directs the future right now. And I think there is a massive awakening going on. Along with all of this evolution of technology, we are evolving technologies to displace not just jobs, but to displace governments. And I talked about that a lot this week, so I won't rehash it here, but things like virtual nations, things like free cities, um, all of these things are coming and they're coming quickly. And expect what I would call a quickening as more and more of this stuff comes to fruition. And where we're going to have to readapt everything, because the things that we were convinced would work or the things that we knew would would fail are, are, are now beginning to fail in spite of, you know, maybe half the people believe they would work. Obamacare is a perfect example. I told you Obamacare was designed to fail. It was designed to fail, and I told you that before it was passed. And today we're seeing more and more of the large insurers back out of Obamacare. Obamacare is on the knife's edge of falling apart right now. But here's the thing. Both sides are completely wrong because everybody on the right said, well, we, we you know, health insurance as it is just needs a few little tweaks to fix it. Now, the whole health insurance industry is about to fall on its ass because you can only force people to buy a product till it gets to a certain price point. And you only force a company to sell it until it becomes unprofitable so long, and then the product itself falls apart. So how do we fix health care? How do we just take the word insurance out of it? How do we fix health care so that people have access to health care without going bankrupt in a world where jobs are being eliminated and everything's being replaced? There's, I, I read an article recently on, on farm implements that are becoming automated, and one was basically the dog is losing his job. They have a robot now that hangs out with the cows. It moves the cows to different paddocks when it's time for them to move, and it chases predators away. So generally when you have cattle dogs, you might have a cattle dog that helps you move the cattle, 
and you have a dog like a, like an Antolian Shepherd or a Great Pyrenees that protects the cattle. So this is putting the rancher, the dog, and the other dog out of out of a job. This is this is the future we're headed for, and it's up to us to reap rewards from of it instead of deny it until a point where it's too late to figure out how to do so. It's important, and that's why I keep bringing it up. And hold on to that thought for today's closing song. Before our closing song, I'd like to remind you, if you like this show, you like the work I do, you like the panel I've put together for you, that you can have answer all of these questions. World, well, some of these people are world-famous experts in their fields. Um, that happens because of members who support the show through the Member Support Brigade. Without that, it couldn't happen. To become a member, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You do that, you'll get exclusive benefits available only to members, a lot of content nobody else gets. You'll get every episode of the show ever produced in convenient zip files. Um, and you'll get discounts on over 60 services. And I am still working on that fish discount for you guys. It's weird. There's certain industries that this is hard. And there's certain industries where it's so easy. It's like some people run businesses and they just don't understand the word incremental revenue. But it's my job to get them to understand that. So I'll keep working on it. And I'll keep making the MSB a, a better deal, especially if you guys can keep supporting me. Go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. Uh, next up, the other way you can support this show is go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you go to tspaz, you'll see a link. You click on that link, you go to Amazon. You shop on Amazon because you were going to do it anyway. You do your Amazon shopping. You don't spend any extra money. You support the Survival Podcast. See how cool that is? And that means if you're buying anything, it doesn't matter what, if you're buying batteries, you're buying pellets for your pellet gun, you're buying, I don't know, uh, cookware, uh, you're buying toilet paper, doesn't matter what it is. If you buy it through my link, I get credit for it, you support the show, and it doesn't cost you nothing. That's the easiest way to support us. Today's item of the day I have uh, for you to check out if you go to T-Spaz or just the blog itself uh, is the Incuview Automatic Incubator. This is the incubator I use for incubating duck eggs. I used it for chicken eggs for a long time. If I ever decide to start incubating my own quail, it's what I'll use. We've used it to incubate geese. It is the best incubator under 200 bucks that I've ever found. Our hatch rates were through the roof with it. Um, it is just phenomenally easy to use. It takes a little bit of time to learn, you know, like how much water to keep the humidity where you want it, but It's not as fussy as I think people think it is when it comes to keeping humidity right. As long as you get it up high toward the end, which is really easy to do, you set this thing, and once you set it and you have it dialed in, all you do is keep an eye on the humidity and the water level in the, in the, in the reservoir in the bottom. It does everything. It turns the eggs. It knows when to stop turning the eggs. And you program it, but it's not complicated programming. Even I can do it. The instructions are on one page, just to give you an idea of how easy it is to use this thing. And you can find that at tspaz.com or again, if you're not in the market for incubating your eggs or, or what have you, anything you're going to buy on Amazon and everything that I've ever reviewed on Amazon, you can find at tspaz.com. I will point out one thing though. People are like, incubating eggs? Doesn't this fool know it's August? It's fixing to be September? It's fixing to be fall? We need to be incubating eggs in there. Okay, well, it's actually a great time to incubate your eggs. You get your little chickies, your eggs, you know, you put them in around September 1st. Somewhere between like you know whatever you got, you got September 21st, September 28th, right? You're going to have babies because that's how long it takes ducks and chickens to, to come out of the egg. And then so you, you put them in your brooder, and they're in there for like three weeks. Now you're into like mid-October. Now your birds have started to have feathers on them. They can go outside. It's cool out. It's not hot. They're not in stress. It's not cold enough to stress them out yet. 
By the time you're into November and you start getting the real winter, you've got birds that are a couple months old. They're introduced to the flock. They're on their way. They're not any, you're not doing any work during the heat of the year or the cold of the year when it comes to taking care of your babies. And then March, boom, eggs come out of them. When's everybody else getting chickens? March. Think about it. This is the time of year to be brooding babies. It really is. All right, so uh, just, a, just a little extra there. I try to always do that with my reviews as to give you guys things to think about and things to, to educate you uh, and give you information you didn't have already about how to think about homesteading, life, the kitchen, the, 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 you know, the, the workshop, no matter what it is. We try to bring that with our Amazon reviews at tspaz.com. Which brings me now to our closing song of the day. Our closing song of the day is from uh, Brad Paisley. It is not the fishing song that I recently put on. Some of you guys really like that one. It is a song that fits perfect with our closing segment today. It is called Welcome to the Future. Welcome to the Future. We're, we're here. Where the future is here. So this song talks about a lot of stuff that I think we just take for granted today. And those of us that are under, I'd say under 30, really don't get it. Right? If you weren't a child in the 70s and the 80s, you didn't hear that all of this stuff was going to be coming and think, yeah, sure. Right? When I was in school in the 80s, and you hear very very similar things to this in the in the song that you're about to hear, um, I remember watching TV shows where people would talk to each other and see each other when they talked to each other. And it would always be like, like a rich place, and it was still the future, but it was only a rich guy had a TV screen and could call somebody up and talk to him on the screen. Or on Star Trek it happened, right? You know, on screen, and that come up. And you think, wow, yeah, someday, oh, I out there like Star Trek, like 2300 or something, right? Uh, we do that every day now, guys. We do that every day. Even in the 90s, people didn't believe it was going to be that prevalent. I remember talking about uh, video conferencing to clients in the 90s about upgrading their, their infrastructure because they were going to have greater bandwidth needs, and uh, we won't ever do that. Everybody's doing it now. Everybody's doing it now. I mean... We do it all the time. I had a conversation with Kevin Keegan uh, from Perma Ethos yesterday for about half an hour on some business for Perma Ethos. We jumped on Skype with video. Why? Because we could. My grandson spends the night here, and every night that he spends the night here, once mom and dad are home for the night, uh, or mom's home for the night, depending if my son's working late that night, uh, they pick up the iPhone and they FaceTime and they talk to each other on a little tiny box. Okay, I... I know those of you who were born, let's say, in the late 80s think, oh, yeah, I remember kind of not having this stuff, and then it came. You, you, what you don't remember is when it was so ridiculous that it would ever happen in a way where everybody would have access to it. When I was a kid in school, I had this idea, and that's when you're a kid, you think an idea is like, like yours, right? And I had this idea that one day that you'd have a watch, and you could play video games on your watch, Because they had the Casio calculator watches, right? And uh, every, all, every kid had one, and the math teacher would always take them away when you had a math test. Um, but anyway, you said the Casio. Uh, remember the Casio? No? You young guys, you don't remember Casio calculator watches? Yeah, they were big. Anyway, they were big time. Anyway, so I was like, well, you could have something like this, and the screen could be a little bit bigger. You have a little cartridge. And you put a little cartridge in there, you could play Pac-Man, right? And you wouldn't have to have an Atari 2600. You could play Pac-Man on your watch. And, and, you know, everybody's like, wow, it's, you know, someday maybe. Watches become almost completely irrelevant other than, I guess, a Fitbit, right? Uh, because by the, the cell phone that everybody holds. 
I remember in the 90s talking to a guy from AT&T, and he said what everybody doesn't understand, and he was holding up one of the old cell phones, not a brick, but like an old-school flip one, you know, that didn't really do anything. These are going to be in every hand in the world. This is going to be the gateway to everything. This is going to be the gateway to shopping. This is going to be the gateway to music, to entertainment. It's not going to be for he's actually said people are going to do not only do more with it than making phone calls, making phone calls will be one of the things they do the least with it. I was at a seminar where this guy from AT&T said that. I was sitting in there, I was one of the youngest people in the audience. Um because I kind of moved quickly in my career. And I watched these guys that had been around since the AT&T breakup and before it. Okay, now they weren't all from AT&T. I'm just talking about the the, the landscape change that happened with the when, when AT&T when the bells were broken up, and uh, I, I just looked at these men that were you know 20 years older than me, just shaking their heads like this this no this is stupid we can't waste our time on this we have to go back to you know what sells today. I wonder what they're thinking today. I wonder what they're thinking today. I guess they'd be you know in their 60s today. I know what I thought. Yeah, but not not that fast. Yeah, that fast. And listen to this song. And there's one other th part of it that's kind of hopeful toward the end. And it talks about the change in, in the relations between the races. And I think one thing we need to be optimistic about the future about is it's easy for you guys to look at all of the crap you see in places like Milwaukee and Ferguson and the riots and Black Lives Matter hate groups and, and stuff like that and, and think that race relations are worse in this country than they've ever been. Again, if you're, if you're, you know, 30 or under, you don't under, you don't understand. You don't understand at all. I can tell you that people get along better today, regardless of race, sex, religion, than they ever have in this country. And the media is going to show you the small groups, the assholes, the racist pricks that don't. Because That sells ratings. But there are more children playing together today of different races than I ever saw when I was a child. And what's different is even though I saw that done to a degree when I was a kid, black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids getting along, parents no longer intercede. Because when I was a kid, yeah, parents would pull children apart. Really. It's not that long ago. Future's here. Here's a song about it. You're living in it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Thinking how cool it would be When we were going on an eight-hour drive If I could just watch TV And I'd have given anything To have my own To have to get a ride down to the arcade Now I've got it on my phone Hey, 
hundred letters to my grandma. Mailed him from his base in the Philippines. I wish they could see this now. Well, they say it's changed, you know. Cause I was on a video chat this morning. Martin Luther 